0: All right, everyone, welcome back to another Roundup edition of On The Margin. Uh, Today, unfortunately, Mark is taking a break, but we still have a great show for you. Bit of an interesting format. For the first 30 or so minutes of the show, uh, my colleague Jack Farley and I of Forward Guidance are going to be interviewing Yoon Lee. Yoon is a Buffett watcher extraordinaire. Uh, We had the 2022 shareholder letter come out from Berkshire, and we're going to be digging deep, deep into that letter and what we can learn from it. The last half hour is going to be Jack and I going back on some of the more typical macro talk that we usually do on the roundup. So without further ado, we're going to get right into it. Enjoy. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Forward Marginal Guidance, uh, which is the name for Jack and my mashup here. So I'm joined by uh, my co-host on this particular episode, Jack Farley. uh, And we've got Yoon Lee, who's a markets reporter at CNBC.
1: Yoon, welcome.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Great to be here, Mike. Great to be joined by by Yoon. Yoon is an expert on all things Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett, so we're very lucky to have her here.
2: Thank you so much. I'm very glad to be here.
1: And there's no
0: better week, right? We just had uh, the 2022 annual letter uh, come out from Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, There were a couple of barbs from the Oracle from Omaha, right? Uh, He definitely had some very choice language that he included, but... Uh Yoon you've been covering uh, Warren Buffett and Berkshire deeply uh, for the past couple of years so I'd be very curious to just kind of get your your high level take on on the the shareholder letter.
2: Yeah, the annual letter it's been a tradition for six decades and always interesting, always you know very highly anticipated every year and me as a reporter it's always exciting, you know. You log on, you download the letter at AM sharp. Sometimes the website would crash. <laughs> and then you finally get it. And then you read it quickly from top to bottom. And sometimes I would read it from bottom up to, just to see if there's any big news in terms of succession or retirement. Obviously not this time. Um, and um, so it's, it's very exciting. Always nice to hear um, what his takes are on market and on the economy. Um, I do have to know, though, The letters have been getting shorter and shorter over the years. Um, I've heard people say, you know, there's some disappointment and it's not as informational as they were before. And Buffett, you know, he doesn't really like to talk about things that people want him to. And the message is kind of in the things that he doesn't address that he omits, which is interesting. Um, But there are still some takeaways from this year's letter. And um, I think the biggest headlines... Um, One of the biggest headlines we got this year was how he really defended stock buybacks and pushing Mm. back on critics. Um, As you said, you know, I'm sure you read this wonderful quote in the letter and I'm going to read it to you right now. Um, So he goes, when you're told that all repurchases are harmful to shareholders or to the country or particularly beneficial to CEOs, You're listening to either an economic illiterate or a silver-tongued demagogue, characters that are not mutually exclusive. So really slamming the critics there. Um, Very interesting language. Um, So why is he defending buybacks right now? Um, Berkshire uh, in 2022, in 2021, it was a record year of buybacks for Berkshire. They repurchased $27 27 billion dollars in Berkshire shares, and then last year, 2022, it was much lower, about 8 billion dollars, because Buffett found external opportunities in the market. He also did a big deal; he bought insurance company Allegheny for more than 11 billion dollars. So he, you know, he found other ways to deploy his mountain of cash. So he bought back less, few, way fewer shares. Um, And buybacks have been under fire recently, um, Mm. especially among politicians. You know, it's kind of politicized. Um, You know, critics, they think buying back shares, you know, companies, they think companies have better ways to use their cash for um, the long term growth for the company. For example, you can use cash for um, to improve employee benefits for CapEx upgrading your factories, your equipment, you know, and those are better for long-term growth as opposed to you buying back shares. You're essentially lowering the number of outstanding shares, right? Your share count goes down. So your stock price automatically gets a boost and that might not be sustainable if you stop doing that. Right. Um, so, and then obviously Buffett disagrees with that. He thinks, Buybacks are beneficial to all shareholders because he said the math is simple. You know, share accounts goes down, and then your interest in all different kinds of Berkshire businesses goes up. So it's beneficial to shareholders. So I thought the buybacks discussion was uh, that was something that really jumped out to me.
1: Right. Yeah. For for Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner, that type of language would be par for the course. But for Warren Buffett. <laughs> That was definitely some very fiery language, right? Right there, silver tongue yeah, like, demagogues. And yeah, you Just for our audience, so when a company makes money, there are two ways it can return capital to shareholders. One is uh, via dividends, and the other is buybacks when they buy back their own share, reducing the, the number of shares. So uh, you are absolutely right that the stock price tends to go up. There's upward pressure on the on the stock. Uh, however, I think Warren Buffett he focuses much more on the you know he's all about businesses, not stocks. He, uh, he he's about uh, the fundamental earning power. So uh, you know, if, if we buy back stocks, there are fewer shares, so the uh, earnings per share uh, goes up. So he's a defendant of the uh, practice of buybacks, which he thinks is legitimate and can be good in in uh, some instances. However, you tell us about the circumstances where uh, Warren Buffett might think buybacks are bad, and i'll I'll throw two hypotheticals at you. One is when a company buys back its own stock that is actually not undervalued but overvalued, And the other is one in which, uh, corporate executives are uh, keeping the stock price high so they themselves can sell, or offsetting the effect of um you know em- employee share-based compensation, where uh, you know a company is you know giving away like half a billion dollars in in its shares and then it's buying them back. So, but it's it is not reducing the share count. The share count is, is remaining flat.
2: Right, right. If an executive, if they buy back shares and you see executives, immediately selling some of their stocks. That's not good, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And we know Buffett is never going to sell any of his Berkshire stake. Um, And also, Buffett, he has his own calculation, his own formula when it comes to buying back Berkshire shares. So he only buys back, he said when it makes sense, but he only buys back when Berkshire shares are trading 20% to its intrinsic value. Right. And then he has his own calculation of intrinsic value, which is, um, you know, his investment plus cash, plus um, the value of his different businesses. You know, he has insurance companies, energy companies, railroads, retailers, all of that. You add that up and then you apply a reasonable multiple, sometimes I think typically 11 times and then you get the intrinsic value. Um, if it's trading 20% or more in, into that value, intrinsic value, he tends to buy back shares. So he really thinks about um, shareholders and, you know, if it, if it makes sense for Berkshire to buy back shares. He really looks at the stock prices. And now um, Berkshire hit its record high in March last year. Um, it's above half a million dollars, really high. Uh, now it's, you know, down a lot. So we're Maybe he'll buy back more this quarter. We'll see.
1: And uh, what do you think his appetite is for acquisitions? Uh, he, he notably was somewhat on the sidelines during 2020, and that you know that annual meeting of 2020 really was quite stark when he was announcing. You know, I don't know if the airlines. Can, can make it, um, and he sold sold all of his airlines at uh, you know, low prices. Mm-hmm. Then in 2021, there was a moment during not during the letter, but during the annual meeting, where he said, "You know, we're actually finding our companies can pass along prices. We're being charged more, and then we're charging more." And that you know was a very very uh, important sign for the, for the global economy. What, what do you think? Uh, what do you think? What do you think Buffett has cooking right now? What What is he thinking? Is he as worried about a potential recession as uh, you know m- many m- some folks are? Or you know, does he not think that way? He's just focusing on, on finding the best quality businesses. Is he seeing bargains? You know, what, what do you think he's seeing? What if the letter was c- completely, um, you know, un- unaudited, and it was just his stream of consciousness thoughts? What would that letter say?
2: I think he is haunting some targets right now, especially after this big sell-off we've seen last year, and price asset prices have um, come down a lot, right? And then he's been touting this elephant-sized target for years. And people wonder, you know, if Allegheny was that elephant-sized deal. Probably not. Only $11 billion, right? Um, And then he also, one of the biggest moves he did last year was uh, buying a lot of Occidental petroleum shares. Um, He even got approval to purchase half of the oil company, right? And um, Berkshire's stake is above 21% now. Um, And I've talked to many people who think he is probably going to buy more Occidental shares. And especially now the stock is um, below his average purchasing price. Um, And, you know, he was really spot on. So the two biggest stock picks last year, Occidental and Chevron, two energy stocks. And guess what? Energy sector was the best winning, the biggest winner last year. Occidental was the big. biggest gainer in the um s p 500 right and then um and now we're seeing this reset this little correction this year so he might get more um shares in the energy sector which is a very traditional value sector um and um and he's doing a lot of stuff i mean last quarter um he sold um, a significant portion of Taiwan Semiconductor. I don't know if that stock is on your radar. He bought $4 billion of Taiwan Semi in the third quarter, but sold most of it in the fourth quarter, which is very rare mm-hmm. for this, you know, he's the biggest buy and hold guy, right? Yeah. Um, so, so it's rare to see him get in and out of the position, such sizable position that quickly. Um, so he is actively trading, actively looking for bargains. Um, so I, that's my suspicion right there.
1: And you, you do you have a sense of why he got out of Taiwan S- semi, as you said, very rare for Buffett to get in and get out of things. He is the ultimate buy and hold. The ideal, uh, duration for holding a stock is forever. I think he, he said you yeah. know, exactly that. So, you know, for the you know, average trader. Oh, I got into this stock. He got out of that stock. You know, that's somewhat common. Uh, Buffett is not about that at all. He's a long-term investor. So for him to sort of buy uh, this Taiwan s- semiconductor, and then flip it the, the next quarter, uh, it says something. Is he maybe worried about U.S.-China relations, the Chips Act?
2: Yeah, it's it's very rare. You know, he said, you know, Charlie and I, we are not stock pickers; we are business pickers. They pick longer-term quality business and investing something for the long haul. It is very rare, and um, Taiwan semi the stake being in the billion-dollar range. Um, it's probably not from his investing managers Ted Combs, uh, Ted Wesler and Todd Combs. It's probably. Uh, Warren Buffett's uh, buying. Um, and I, I spoke to uh, some of my sources. and um, something worth noting is that Charlie Munger did his annual meeting with um, Daily Journal a couple weeks ago. I don't know if you guys listened. Um, he There was a question about semiconductor and Taiwan semi specifically. And that gave me a little bit insight into what they were thinking about this sector. And he specifically said that it's really hard to time this sector, to time, to buy something because of the cyclical nature of the semiconductor industry. It ebbs and flows so much and it kind of moves in tandem with um, the economy because it's very cyclical. So maybe they think the cycle is ending and they... Um, they're a little bit negative of what's ahead in terms of the economy, in terms of the sector. Um, obviously, Buffett didn't really comment on any specific um, stock, really, in the letter. And I'm sure the question will come up in the annual meeting. So, But I wonder if that's kind of a signal of how, how slightly negative he is about um, the economy in the short run. Um, selling out of Taiwan semiconductor. And as you mentioned, there's also political tension um, uh, between China and Taiwan. Um, I don't want to speculate there. Um, you know him buying such a big stake in Taiwan semi was a um, a vote of confidence back then in the third quarter that's what people were saying. They were like, oh my god, Warren Buffett, he probably he's he's a he him and Charlie Munger they are they have been bullish on China for the longest time, um, and people are saying he's not worried about any political tension buying such a stock and now he sold it so quickly. I don't know what's going on there. Uh, if anything changes, changed um, on the political political front, um, but and also. Um, Taiwan sent me after he bought the stock, uh, after, you know, it was revealed that he took such a big stake, the stock took off, right? It went up by a lot of, um, it went up by at least 10% in the fourth quarter. Um, And maybe he thought, you know, we've got enough profit to take here. Um, And of course, it went on to uh, rally a lot more this year, which he kind of missed out on the biggest rebound there. Um, but that's another story. So that's some of the the reasons that I can think of of him Great. selling that stake.
1: Thanks. And is there any whisperings of Berkshire Hathaway buying any uh, Chinese equities? Warren Buffett, as a, you know, in the in the past, he bought a large stake in PetroChina early early two thousands. That turned out fantastically. Uh, I mean, Charlie Munger is he loves China. Um, and you know, some of his private wealth is you know invest a lot of his private wealth is invested in there. I mean, he's spoken saying Jack Ma shouldn't have said what he said. Uh, so yeah, so see, and the Chinese equities have been you know from where they were a year or two ago very depressed, and you know their their valuation people. So uh, might they be interested in, in getting into China? And if not, what does that say?
2: Yeah, I think over the the years uh, recent years. His appetite for international stocks has gone up, uh, has gotten bigger. You know, he bought into five Japanese trading companies um, either last year or the year before. I don't really remember, but it was a really big stake. Uh, And combined, they were among the top 10 holdings of Berkshire. And he revealed last year they bought a couple German companies. We still don't know what they are, but he said they bought some German securities too. Um, and and Berkshire was an early investor in BYD, the Chinese electric vehicle company. And, um, and Charlie Munger bought um, BYD because uh, under the influence of his friend Li Lu, who is a Asset manager here, I think based in Seattle. Um, and um, they're, they've been very good friends over the years. And Li Lu is the only person who's managed Charlie Munger's personal wealth other than himself. Okay. And then he introduced him to Alibaba, to Pinduoduo, other Chinese stocks. So, and then, um, and BYD has done exceptionally well over the years. And um, I think uh, Berkshire's stake has gone up by like 600 percent, something crazy. And Berkshire this last year has um, been trimming that stake, kind of ringing the bell on the bet a little bit, taking some profit. Um, But I wouldn't be surprised if he bought more Chinese stocks or international stocks in general.
0: Hello. Hello, everyone. Thank you all for listening to on the margin. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up about a conference that we have coming up in the new year called permissionless. I'm sure most of you have all been there last year. Uh, it is the cultural event of the year. We had over 5500 people down in Palm Beach. This year, we're moving to Austin, Texas. You know what they say about Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> Uh, so last year we had a really great lineup of speakers. We had the two co-founders of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bot. We had Chris Dixon. We had some of the folks that have been on the show a whole bunch of times. Jim Bianco, Dan Tapiero. Just a phenomenal lineup of speakers and you can expect the same this year. If you use Margin10, you will get 10% off on a ticket. Again, that's Margin10 because I love you guys so much. Click the link at the bottom of the show notes. Hope to see you there in person. One one part that stood out to me and, and you and I I definitely don't track these these annual letters as, as deeply as you do, but there was a he dedicated a uh, about a page or so to sus- some surprising facts about federal taxes. So he starts off as this is the quote from the letter. During the decade ending in 2021, the United States Treasury received about 32.3 trillion in taxes while it spent 43.9 trillion. So that's about a 10 trillion dollar deficit or so over the last decade. Uh, I'm curious, like, what did you kind of take away? Is that a, you know, sort of a typical digression for Buffett? What do you think he really meant uh, by this kind of passage? And, you know, how do you interpret him including that that statistic in this letter?
2: I think taxes in general is a hot button issue for billionaires like Warren Buffett, <laughs> right? And then yeah. so I think he he wanted to address some of it. And I think the main takeaway I got from that section of the letter is that he said how He's happy. He's glad to pay tax taxes because um, Berkshire has benefited from the American tailwind, as he put it. Um, and he—that's kind of um, him reaffirming that he is still a believer in the country,
1: mm. and
2: um, and especially last year. And then that's a message he's been conveying to shareholders years after years, right? Bet on America. Never bet against it. Even uh, during the pandemic, at the height of COVID, he his his really key message to investors was that never bet against America because the country always prevails. We've been through wars. We've been through natural disasters, political chaos. We always prevail. We always survive. And um, I think um, that portion of the letter is. Um, that's my takeaway from that portion of the letter. Just he wants to say that I'm happy to pay my taxes. Um, I'm betting on America. I'm benefiting from America from capitalism, and that's what I have to say about it. Up about taxes, I think that's yeah. That's my takeaway.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know he he started off this this shareholder letter sort of. Thanking uh, right the his sort of LPs in a sense for for Berkshire Hathaway the the people whose money he is uh, managing you know uh, on on behalf of and and that is who he says he has in mind when he's when he's writing this letter. However, mm-hmm. you know when you kind of look at his his thoughts on uh, stock buybacks right in that particular bar uh, a silver tongued demagogue you know yeah. there's a very limited number of people that that could potentially refer to. And I look right. at his uh, his description of of taxes. Um, you know a part of me thinks hey this is actually a very savvy guy and he understands that it's a much broader base of readers than just the the shareholders of of Berkshire Hathaway so mm-hmm. in, I know this is kind of a, a broad question but like what's your kind of take having read a lot of these letters like who is Buffett really talking to with his audience like what is the point of him kind of opining on taxes and buybacks and, and all that stuff who is he trying to reach with that message?
2: Yeah, he generally doesn't like to comment directly on political issues, but mm. the letters, especially during annual meetings, but the letters, um, it is a way for him to um, to say things um, in his own way, to control the narrative, so to speak. Um, and I think, uh, as you said, he addressed the letter sort of to his um, business owners and shareholders Um, But he also includes some political issues, some issues that have been politicized, like taxes and buybacks. Um, So he's definitely talking to his critics, the naysayers, right? Not only to his admirers around the world. Um, and, um, And yeah, so he... I'm trying to think what else, what other political issues he uh, he kind of addressed in the letter. Nothing really came to mind, Um, so I think buybacks is the biggest hot button issue there that he really addressed this time. We were all very surprised by the language he used.
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah, I've got a question, which is, people have a characterizations about what level of interest rates or in what direction they're going in are good for some companies. So a growth, an unprofitable technology stock, rising interest rates are really bad for them. But a bank, they're really good for them. What is your sense of how uh, rising interest rates affects Berkshire Hathaway? Because their insurance business takes in a ton of cash and they have you know hundreds of billions of dollars in treasury bills, which two years ago yielded nothing and now yield you know close to 5%. Is that a good thing for Berkshire, a bad thing for Berkshire?
2: It's it's kind of a combination. And that's something that people really wanted to hear him talk about inflation, uh, not inflation, interest rates, but he didn't. But I'm sure he will during the annual meeting. But um, interest rates um, are very important to investing, to asset prices. I think he said very famously um, a couple of years ago, he said interest rates to asset prices is like gravity to the apple, right? Gravity to the matter. So there's really this gravitational pull on asset prices when interest rates are higher. And now, so two things, interest rates, as you said, bond, short-term treasury yields, some of them are yielding 5% right now. Um, And Berkshire Hathaway having so much cash, um, I think about $130 billion at the end of last year, and the majority of it investing in treasury bills, they are making very sust- substantial return just by investing in risk-free short-term treasuries, right? Billions of dollars, and um, and also there's an- another aspect which is that higher interest rates give Berkshire an advantage when it comes to deal making. You know, yeah. Buffett and Berkshire. They were not. They they didn't pull the trigger for the longest time there because the, the comp- competition was getting really tough. They're compete. They were competing with SPACs. You know, they were competing with private equity, and because those those people they're borrowing money for free, interest rates were zero, and now interest rates are much higher. And Berkshire Hathaway have so much cash that they can tap into so much liquidity. They can eat you know it really gives them an advantage when they go to you know negotiate for deals because his competition private equities and uh, others they might have a hard time because they need to uh pay such high interest uh interest when it but, comes to making deals also sorry go ahead yeah and also berkshire um has a, a myriad of different businesses from more capital intensive ones like railroads, um, energy to uh, retailers and insurance companies, you know, and then they employ so much employees, Uh, you know, wage inflation as we know is very sticky right now. Um, And inflation, it is um, taking a toll on Berkshire Hathaway's different operating businesses. And, um, and I think, uh, but it's, Operating businesses, it, it last quarter it fell a little bit, eight percent compared to a year ago, um, give because of the hit it took from inflation uh, and higher interest rates.
1: Mm, thanks. Yeah, just on the car insurance front, I know mm-hmm. that uh, there was a time Geico made made a lot of money from the, the float, and that you know was a source of uh, neg- negative capital really. Uh, you know, they can get capital at negative rates, um, but they might have lost a little bit of money. Might not have done as well as Folks like progressive and because they use things like telematics, you know, which I don't really understand, but it's, you know, it's technology to, uh, see, Oh, this person is going too hard on the gas pedal. So, uh, we're going to increase their race. And they, they were late to that. Do you have a sense of their plan to get back into the business? And, you know, Ajit Jeep Jane, who, who runs their insurance operations, uh, remarkable track record. Uh, but you know, is he, is he, you know, up, up to date on, on, on telematics, which is kind of like a newer thing. You know, he's a, uh, closer in age to, to you know, that that demographic? It's
2: it's a really good question. GEICO has been really underperforming, especially compared to Progressive. Like you said, they are late. Um, They didn't really do the telematics. I don't really understand what it is either, but I know they've been posting a full year of underwriting losses. Um, And Buffett said in the letter this year, they're expecting a profit uh, in the full year of 2023. So they might, there might be a turnaround going forward. And another thing to note is that Geico's CEO is Ted Combs, who's also one of uh, Buffett's investing lieutenants. Uh, so he not only runs Geico, he also manages um, a portion of Berkshire's equity portfolio. And when he took the CEO position, Berkshire, Uh, he signaled that it would be a temporary position. Uh, He will be finding a replacement for him because of uh, the big uh, responsibility he has uh, across Berkshire's different aspects. Um, So people are wondering if they are going to find a replacement CEO for GEICO soon. So that's a question that I'm sure will come up during the annual meeting.
1: Interesting. My, 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 my final question for you about Berkshire is, so no one knows what the big whopper is going to be, or if, if the big, if there is going to be no big, big whopper, only really, you know, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, but I'm sure, you know, there, there might be rumors of, oh, it could be this, it could be that. What are the sort of whisperings about what, uh, the prize that Warren Buffett might be eyeing for the next big acquisition?
2: So, uh, yeah, there were always rumors about okay. Warren Buffett's next deal. Right. And, um, I'm not sure if you know that there were some companies that track uh, that tracks um, planes, plane activities. So they would they would track, you know, which uh, which company executives they fly into Omaha. What does that mean? And uh, and I think two years ago or last year, uh, they saw a Hershey's jet landing in Omaha. I'm sure it's, it is all speculation. It is all rumors. But I just thought that was interesting. And Hershey, you know, when you think about it, it makes sense, right? You know, Buffett, he likes a big consumer, well-known brand. kind he of likes like, candy.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah candy. <laughs> like Kraft Heinz, Coca-Cola, that type of stuff. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. Hershey is one. And then, you know, him buying... Occidental all right is not off the table he can still do that and um, he he has been acquiring more and more you know now is uh, more than 20% of the company and um, so there's another interesting fact so if he if he does take over Occidental uh, he would have come full circle because the first stock he ever bought was Cities service, preferred stocks. At the age of eleven, and forty years later, City Service was acquired by Occidental, and Occidental's wow. now CEO Vicky Holub used to work at City Service. So it would it would be crazy if that happened. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that's fate. That's, that's wild. And and uh, what did City Service do? Like in the oil field sector, or something? Yeah, it's
2: there? energy. It's a uh, refiner. Ah,
1: gotcha. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs>
0: You no, know, it was one of my, uh, you know, not too many takeaways here, but I, I did love the, the section where he kind of reminisced about buying Berkshire Hathaway. And, you know, one of my favorite stories about uh, just Berkshire and Buffett in general is that Buffett calls buying Berkshire Hathaway the dumbest stock or the biggest mistake that he ever made and has actually estimated that that purchase cost him about $200 billion in terms of opportunity cost, which is just a a funny little, you know, obviously I think that's a little bit lighthearted, but it's just a funny, uh, you know, kind of look at history.
2: Mm -hmm. And Buffett, he sometimes he would admit that he's he's made mistakes in the past, right? And, um, he said, when he bought precision car parts, he said that was a big mistake. That was the big, that was um more way more than what he paid for Allegheny. And he said he he overpaid that right. And then, also, um famously, when Berkshire, Bought, so one of the investing managers bought amazon a couple of years ago people were like people were shocked oh my god you're a value guy you're buying amazon and who would have thought today 40 percent of his portfolio is apple right and um, so at that time he said oh I really missed out on Google that was one of the biggest mistakes that he made just because they had they had some insight into Google because how much advertising money Geico was paying he was like, we we had this insight, but we didn't really see, see um, the potential there. So he and Charlie Munger repeatedly have said that they've missed out on, missed out on a lot of technology companies um, that they really didn't really understand. But with the help of the younger guys, younger managers, they're able to uh, increase their exposure to the technology and take advantage of the growth especially the last bull market it really only benefited growth stocks right the fang type of things the fang stocks you know combined they took over 20% of the stock market and um and even though Warren Buffett got into Apple kind of late but he still made so much money out of that single stock um
1: yeah right and and Apple bought, bought back its own shares and then Berkshire bought right. it back its own shares so mm-hmm. you get the double yeah. uh compounding effect yeah that's one lesson i learned from warren buffett is he when he says oh i don't understand google he's read the annual report from google 10 times like he understands it better than most people probably you know uh most most people who own the stock of google but he just has such a high standard for for understanding that you know you you should have excess humility and uh just because you can talk about it doesn't mean that you Actually, understand it, and uh, it's right. a good good lesson.
2: Yeah, and then he, I think, when he buys something, he has to understand the whole industry. He has to understand the whole ecosystem and how the competition will shake out in the next decade or twenty years. You know, and um, I think when he said he uh, made a mistake not buying Google. He didn't really understand how of a monopoly it would be, how, oh, he even said that um, he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't sure that if the search engine will be, will have more competition. And right now it's a really popular issue, right? With different types of uh, search engines coming up. And I thought that was interesting that he thought many, many years ago, you know, I don't know this Google thing, if Bing would take off, if other things would take off. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of Warren Buffett's, um, a lot of those returns are just from not selling. Like, there, I'm sure there are people who bought Apple in 1995 and made 200% of it and were like, wow, I'm such a good investor. You know, but literally, no, they you know they could have made so much more if they just held. And I think to have that confidence to hold, you, you do have to really understand that. Um, yeah.
2: And um, Berkshire Hathaway itself, it their Class A shares, they don't do st- stock splits, right? So if you look at the stock price, it's like almost half a million dollars. And, um, and I think Buffett said in the past that people can use Berkshire shares as a savings account. You just buy and hold for your lifetime, and your money, your your what you put into it will com- compound. Uh, it will make you money. And um, I think uh, that's also why it comes back to the buyback issue, because he believes that his shareholders are long-term shareholders, and they're not going to sell. Um, after you know he buys back stocks um and so i think that kind of speaks to the buyback thing too
0: yeah absolutely uh, well yun uh you've been super generous with your time here and it's great to get such a a buffett expert on the show so you could uh enlighten jack and mys uh, understanding of, of the letter but this was certainly a lot of fun and uh we'll have to do it again sometime soon
2: yeah happy to do it again and i really enjoyed the conversation and um yeah hope to join join you guys again thanks for having me we
1: would Excellent. love that yun and people can f- find your uh, work on uh, cnbc and uh, on twitter you are uh, at Yoon Lee 626 thanks again yun yeah.
0: What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin10 for a 10% discount. And that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code Margin10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Howdy, partner. That was a
1: ton of fun. Yuna's is great. Yeah, oh my gosh. she she knows so much, and it was, it was great to get her here. Yeah, hundred percent
0: really, enjoyed I, I uh, yeah, I thought her her knowledge of just Berkshire's portfolio over the years was super, super. It added a lot of uh, great color to the shareholder letter, where, like I, you know, kind of with my untrained eye was very focused on you know, the buybacks and the taxes sort of part of it, but her kind of helpful context about the portfolio was just excellent. Um, right. And we've been,
1: we've been focusing so much on Berkshire, I think we've kind of been neglecting, uh, you know, the macro. So we, we need to talk about the Federal Reserve, we need to talk about inflation. So let's get into it. So all, all the macro heads are like, this is great. But where's my, you know, where, where's you, my content?
0: You are absolutely right, Jack, you're absolutely right. All right. So I want to start, uh, Jack, just talking about rates here. So what we're looking at here is the market pricing for the US terminal rate. And that is creeping up to just under 5.5%. Um, and the reason for this is the PECE numbers that came in earlier this week, uh, those came in much hotter than expected. We've got some charts on those later. Uh, but again, here, so the bond market just uh, responding just as you think it might. Right. So we've got the two year and the 10 year over here to the left, both of which are shooting up. But of course, we've got uh, it's very inverted across the entire duration of the curve. Uh, so we've got the, the two year yield just climbing in at or clocking at 4.92 um, percent. And the ten-year yield. Oops, I got the got the wrong chart there. Uh, but that's at just over four percent. So there's almost an entire uh, percentage point, so 100 basis points of inversion there. Um, what's your what's your kind of take here? I mean, uh, you know, just kind of zooming out from from we've got kind of a, a climbing terminal rate, we've got a increasingly steepening yield curve, both of which are sort of uh, bearish signs for stocks in the economy overall. I know a couple of your recent interviews have been focused on kind of this uh, no landing, soft landing, hard landing. What are your sort of your sort of thoughts on this?
1: Right. Well, I think the low unemployment rate just really gives the Federal Reserve a lot of room to to cut. Uh I was surprised by these, you know, somewhat dovish meeting on, on February 1st. Uh however, my my view that the rate cuts would be priced out of 2023 uh has, you know, over the past few weeks, uh been validated and uh yeah, if you could actually go back to the to the prior chart that shows yep. on the bottom right the two Yield curves. Uh, so the red is the yield curve right now, and the thinner gray line below it is the yield curve on the first day of this year, January first. And even though uh, the peak of the mountain look like they are the same point about the six or seven month thing, two months have passed since then. So that yep. that means that uh, like actually the actual pivot that was priced in uh, in January just keeps on getting pushed out and pushed out. And you know, Mike, I remember talking with you about this and Joseph Wang about this and like march of literally a year ago when we're saying wow these the rate hikes the rate cuts that are priced into uh september are being pushed out like is it possible that the pivot won't happen until november 2022 and mm-hmm. now like we're talking about 2024 2025 so it's just uh you know i mean the dominoes keep on falling and uh the, the fed pivots just keeps on you know being being priced out and uh so so far being proven wrong and uh yeah i i uh, just did an you know, interesting interview with Alfonso Peccatiello that will come out on uh, March sixth, and he's really in the, the buy, the buy bonds camp, and he made a really compelling case. Um, you know, he's not loading up the truck, but he wants to you know, sort of move into the position. I think that will be a good trade. I'm going to do the classic hack move where you're like, I'm first going to uh, you know do this, and then I'm going to do that. So either way, you know, you, you get to, you, you can't you can't be proven wrong. But but I I, I think honestly this sell off in bonds could continue, and I actually think you're kind of, you're kind of having we could be at the start of a true fire sale in uh duration and not just bonds but equities like you know w- one stock that i i track it's uh, it's, a, it's a stock that won't have any revenue until 2026 so it's the ultimate like long duration thing and uh, these stocks are falling apart so yeah the whole transitory goldilocks thing it was very transitory
0: look i i think i i, I respect that opinion for me it's, it's a little bit difficult because on the one hand you know, it's it's very easy to sort of look at what's happening with yields, especially on the shorter end of the curve. You, you always hate to see, you know, we've got kind of a, a bear steepener situation going on here. It, it looks very bearish. On, on the other hand, uh, you know, what we have seen over on the other half of the globe, right, is, you know, China opening up. And it's hard to understate just exactly how important that is. You know, my co-host, my my regular co-host for this portion of the show, Mark Yusko, uh, has kind of stated time and time again, the, the role that China actually had in getting the world out of basically the great financial crisis, the record amounts of liquidity that they were injecting. So I think what makes this particular moment in time very difficult to parse out is that we tend to think of things as very US centric story. And I think that's probably directionally the correct view. The Fed certainly is sitting in the driver's seat, but certainly there's something to pay attention to going on over in Japan with the sort of change of the guard in the the BOJ and then we also have to look on about what's going on, or look at what's going on in the situation with with China over the PBOC. So it's just it's tougher for me to parse. Uh, I you know, if you're a list, regular listener of the show, I feel like a bit of a broken record. I've been saying this for the past month or so. I think there are these very conflicting drivers and it's tough for me to figure out kind of where we're going to go from here, but I think the one thing that is clear is you're absolutely right, Jack, that the the expectation of a pivot has has continuously getting pushed out. This is the market pricing for Fed rate cuts in the second half of 23. And what you're basically seeing is that that's approaching zero, which means the market is no longer pricing in uh, rate cuts in 2023 at all. And that is certainly headwinds for duration. So that's long bonds and it's uh, tech stocks and crypto for
1: that matter. Right. And yeah, I struggle to see an environment in which bonds perform where the Federal Reserve is still hiking. Like because yeah. for if the Federal Reserve is still hiking 25 basis points every six weeks, and you, you're telling me that the 10-year Treasury is going to go down in yield, that means we're headed for like a biblical inversion, which of course can happen. Uh, mm-hmm. But to me, it seems unlikely. Uh, you know, maybe the 10-year Treasury sells off less in, in, in yield than the the short-term rates. Uh, I don't know, but yeah, I think the the yield curve is still in. It's still very inverted. It's like eighty-eight basis points uh, inverted because even though as those long end rates have moved up a lot, the short end rates have moved up even higher. So, right, yeah, uh, I, I really don't. I really don't know. And I also say on China, I think that we're used to thinking about a recession as like a, a two thousand eight moment where it's the correlation goes to one. Like every stock is just crashing, oil is crashing. Copper price is you know going going and everything is crashing and that you know that was the case that's not a typical recession that happened because like the global financial system failed because there was tons of you know toxic assets that uh, basically the U.S. sent all around the world uh, that that caused a global crisis. I think this recession I, I I don't know I think it could be one in which you know the price of copper is at four bucks because. Uh, China is is reopening uh, vigorously, and uh, you know the price of oil could be high. A lot of people say, uh, "Oh, you know, jet fuel demand in China is only like three percent of their actual oil demand, so it's it's really uh, you know a, a drop in the bucket." Um, but still, you know, reopening could be could be bullish for oil. So, and also, I was talking about this with Alf. Like, let's say you know, Alf says in, in May or, or June that's when the recession will start. But okay, the recession declared uh, about the Great Financial Crisis by the uh, National Bureau of Economic Research started in December, 2007. And in July, uh, what is that? Eight months later after that, after the official recession started, the price of oil was at $140. So it's not like, oh my God, everything is gonna crash it at, at once. So you know, it could be the case that a, a recession starts in June of this year and in February of 2024, the price of oil spikes. So it's, the time horizon is, is so key here. I know I, I'm just rambling, but
0: <laughs> no, no, it's it's a really excellent point. Maybe we could rewind a little bit. We we kind of started with what uh, what was happening within the bond market, but let's talk a little bit about the catalyst that that sort of caused this. So we're looking at uh, PCE inflation month over month, and that print came in hot. And you know we've got a sort of headline PCE. So the survey was 0.5 uh, percent, and actually, what in, in the actual was 0.6. But really, uh, you know, the more important thing is to look at core PCE, and that's a metric that we know that the Fed tra- uh, tracks, you know, uh, very, very closely. And that's the metric that came in. Uh, the survey was for 0.4%. It came in at a 06 So that was kind of what came in hot. And if you're following along via video here, what we're looking at is uh, kind of the the contributions, uh, right, and some of the subcomponent contributors to PCE on a month-over-month uh, percentage. So you can see headline, you can see core. Uh, and again, that it's that that blue bar over on the left that we're looking at, which is uh, services, which has kind of been uh, persistently sticky. And again, there's a a lighter blue uh, section which is non-durable goods. And that's been a drag uh, on inflation for the last couple of months and that reversed uh, this past month. Any any other uh, anything else kind of jump out at you, jack? and 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 additionally, what do you think is is kind of causing this? Um, because I know you were, certainly surprised uh, you might say you might even say a little bit critical of uh Fed Powell's uh Chairman Powell's performance during the last uh, uh FOMC so i'd be curious like what do you think is reigniting this and could you sort of uh put some of the blame on kind of the, the dovish stance that uh, the chairman took during the last FOMC
1: well i'd say i definitely was surprised in february 1st i thought he'd come out and you know smash the stock market and credit spreads would blow out um so i would say i'm much more critical of myself for being wrong than i am of, mm. of powell uh i think that uh rate hikes are a very delayed way of, of fighting in- inflation you know I like to use a framework that's not my own uh zoltan posar perry merlin like there are four prices of money um uh you know interest rates uh foreign exchange like dollar versus euro versus the yen uh par so like a hundred dollars in my bank account is the same as a hundred dollars in another bank account and you know um that that's a problem when you with like Lehman Brothers stuff like that that's related to credit and then the fourth is the price level how much do things cost the federal reserve can has a decent amount of control over the first th- three levels if it wants to now if oh. it wants to you don't really have a free market and there're lots of you know side effects but if it wants to it really can but inflation i mean look if a if a butcher is going to raise the price of beef from $15 to $20 jpal has no control over that and he knows that and he's a, he, and he said that so i think uh, you can't say oh the reason that inflation has reaccelerated is because of the, of the dovish talk i think it's Uh, Inflation affects the rate hikes much more than the rate hikes if it affects the the inflation. Um, So yeah, but yeah, I think that uh, the Fed's going to have to be a little bit more tough. And I think uh, why has the economy proved resilient? I think that uh, a lot of the rate hikes were kind of uh, the the exposure to interest rate hikes has been delayed. So like tons of people borrowed money at 2.9% to buy a house in 2020 and 2021 and now that interest rate is 7% and you say oh the, the cost has gone up 50% to the monthly payments but it's, yeah no one's buying a house now because they're not stupid and uh people who had locked it in at 30 years they're good like they're going to retire you know and then interest rates could be at 20% or 0% who, who, who knows um now obviously if you have no one buying a house uh and refinancing activity falling off the cliff like you know the mortgage broker industry is is you know in, in shambles that's not that's not a a sustainable model for the, for the global economy, but the unemployment rate is at three point four percent. I recently spoke with Mike Green. He thinks that's even more lagging than normal um, because you know uh, folks who were like laid off from like very high paying jobs in technology like might not uh, be as you know in a hurry to like go on unemployment benefits, so it wouldn't be uh, cut off. I
0: had a I had a question for you about that. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. I, no, no. I listened to that. I listened to that uh, that interview that you did with Mike, and obviously, big fan of Mike. He's been on uh, on the margin a couple of times as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that light of logic i completely follow the severance packages at big tech companies like the salesforces or the googles or the microsofts of the world you know it's like 6 months entirely paid benefits right so what's the, what's the incentive to go to kind of the unemployment line the question that i have though is how much is that really impacting the overall unemployment data because you know, there's that kind of statistic floating out there that basically everyone uh, in the entire technology space, so that's like, you know, internet search, it's SaaS, it's all of those kind of high growth uh, tech areas, you know, it would only impact the the overall unemployment rate by like 25 basis points, right? It's a very, very small number. So I heard and followed Mike's logic there. But I also had a question of, you know, how typical is the Google experience here in terms of uh, and how much is that really moving the needle on the overall unemployment rate?
1: uh so i think the answer is not at all and it's uh in terms of the unemployment it's not at all it's, it's yeah tech workers are something like four of, percent of the uh, labor force but oh. in terms of earnings they are a, a lot more uh ah. so that that could be another shoe to drop yeah i mean the economy so far has has proven resilient and the un- you know if people the unemployment's low uh people can afford to uh, pay off their debts. Companies will lend them money, and now that interest is higher, they're like, "I'll lend you as much money as I want." You know, it's like people are sending everyone credit cards. Uh, it's like the the Sorcerer's Stone movie, like where the letters go through the house. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought, I thought that, that, that was like, a great visual. Uh, I appreciate and, that. And uh, look, does this end well? Like, no. But it's it's, it's all about it's all about timing. Um, so yeah, I think the American economy a little bit more less sensitive in the short term to interest rate hikes than, you know, many people thought, uh, maybe yeah. uh, myself included. Um, like, yeah, Amazon is boring, borrowing money at 40, 40 years, you know? Uh, yeah. Now commercial real estate, refinancing offices, you know, home builders, they're, you know, they have to roll over these these paper and they're having a lot of problems. Uh, they, they can't afford it. Some private equity firms that have, they're not going bankrupt to be clear, but they have funds that own assets that are defaulting. Um, and Mm -hmm. that can be a strategic move. Like it doesn't mean that, you know, the entire fund is in problem, but it's, it's not good. It's not good, but it's just a question of time horizon. If you want to ask me my base case, I think the 10 year treasury remains over 4% or maybe even goes to 4.2%, 4.3% over the next three months. Uh, I think the ultimate doom and gloom recession call probably will happen, but I think that I'm just, I'm just looking at these rate hikes and, uh, I don't know. I think I think once once the rate head gets priced in, it's pretty hard to price it out. The, the Federal Reserve tends to follow through, so so we'll see. I don't I don't know, but that's just that's just my bias. What do I know? Uh, I mean, what do any of us know
0: at the end of the day? But what I it's you know it's just you you also make this point to me quite a bit. You know, if you want to score the bond market in terms of their predictive prowess over the course of the last two years. Not doing so hot, right? They they completely missed the inflection point at in twenty twenty one, even when Powell signaled very aggressively, right, that they were going to start fighting inflation and hiking rates. I can't remember exactly what what the verbiage was, but the bond market was the bond market was pretty significantly off. And a sleep at the wheel, yes, it was asleep at the wheel, yeah. And it seems to me anecdotally, but also looking at the data and just you know keeping a relatively close eye on this, that there is a desire in the broader market for the Fed to pivot right people are kind of screaming uncle they're used to the fed responding when they scream uncle and that's what they're not getting so you kind of see this like stubborn climb in terms of that terminal rate and it just steadily has grown uh you know higher and higher it it, it it's i guess it's just a, a bit of a surprise to me frankly that the economy has proven uh able to withstand this amount of rate rate hikes but you know the point we, we actually brought this up on, on last week's roundup with with mark i think something that uh we got a little bit wrong. And I say we I mean, some of the the topics that Mark and I chose to to cover uh, a month or so ago, and you see this a lot on Twitter is kind of this, uh, this skyrocketing, it's like a lower savings rate The the savings rate has kind of fallen off a cliff. uh, And then you're also looking at uh, booming sort of credit card debts. But what I think you have to look at, in addition, there is what is the total amount of household wealth, right? And what percentage of that wealth does the credit card debt uh, account to and, the, the honest truth is that after the, after the pandemic, whether it's transfer payments or the wealth effect or, or whatever it was, um, the American consumer and the average household is actually in a far better position than they were a couple of years ago. And if you kind of remove a lot of the statistics that we're talking about, you know, specific rates or whatever, the Fed is trying to choke off demand, right? That is what they have in their control. Historically, they've done that through the price of money and the quantity of money. So obviously they're they're really trying to turn the dial on the price of money to the point where they see you know a persistent drop in demand and they're kind of getting their wish and they're kind of not getting their wish at the same time we've certainly seen fall off in things like you know ISM and PMI right like manufacturing index has respo- manufacturing activity has responded exactly the way that you would think but what has been stubbornly more persistent is retail sales mm-hmm. and maybe that's because For the last two years, the Fed has been wanting and incentivizing the American consumer to spend. And it's harder to just rip that back all at once. Maybe it's a result of transfer payments and people have more money than they had before. Maybe it's a result of the wealth effect and prices still have not reverted. Financial asset prices, whether it's your home, which is probably the largest component, but even stocks are still above their pre-pandemic levels and maybe people still feel wealthy. Whatever it is, I think it's the American consumer that has been consistently resilient. And I mean, it's a little doom and gloom to say that the Fed wants to break the American consumer, but I think that's what they have to do in order to achieve their stated objective. So I don't mm-hmm. know how long we have to wait for that.
1: Right. And the uh, savings rate going from like 20% going down to 2%, that looks like a really bearish chart. And I understand mm-hmm. why people think that, but when people aren't saving money and 99% of their money is they're spending it, that means that other people, other companies and the people who work at those companies are receiving that money. So it's like, it can be a virtuous circle. Like I I went in the great depression, the savings rate was pretty high. You know, like in China. <laughs> it is. It's famously China, uh, the savings rate is very high. And that's actually a problem because um, you know, the the, the, uh, the consumer is not spending en- enough money. So, th- you know, they have to get orders from uh, all around the world for exports, as opposed to having a domestic consumption economy. And, you know, China is, uh, views that as a very serious problem.
0: All right, folks. And I think that's that's all the time we have today. So uh, big thanks to uh, Yunli for joining us and uh, my colleague, Jack Farley. Jack, it's always a ton of fun to do an episode of Ford marginal guidance. Mark, we missed you this week, but we'll see you here same time next week. Thanks for listening,
2: everyone.